Hello everyone, I am here with the amazing Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. Lisa is among the top 1% most cited scientists in the world for her revolutionary research in psychology and neuroscience. She's a university distinguished professor of psychology at Northwest Northeastern University. She also holds appointments at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital, where she is the chief science officer for the Center of Law, Brain, and Behavior. Dr. Barrett is the author of several books that have revolutionized in a world scale and also in myself too, the way we think about our psychology and neuroscience, including the book which we will discuss today, How Emotions Are Made. Dr. Barrett, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Thank you. So as I was saying before uh, starting, your book really revolutionized the way I see my emotions. I feel about my emotions paradoxically, and it's a journey into more. It's even though it's a neuroscientific approach to ourselves, I feel it's a philosophical journey to who can we become if we get to know ourselves. So I'm curious mm -hmm. to know what invited or what ignited your passion to study our brains and our minds? Well, it was a really long process, actually. Um, so one of the things about careers in science, probably careers in general, I think for people is that when you're young, you think it's a very linear path, like you have a plan and you're going to follow that plan and life has other uh, things in store for you. So um, I've always been really interested in biology and um, always in philosophy and, and in anthropology and in psychology. And I know that sounds like a big range, but I started my undergraduate career actually in biology. I thought I was going to go to medical school, but I fell in love with anthropology and I fell in love with psychology. Um, and I, I think I've always really gravitated to philosophical ideas without really ever having had any training in philosophy. So a lot of the things I would think would be, we would now, I would now understand as having to do with philosophy of mind or philosophy of science. But uh, I decided in the end for various reasons to go to graduate school and not medical school in psychology. And I didn't even start off studying emotion. Actually, I was studying something else completely, but I was using measures of emotion and they weren't really performing well. And I couldn't figure out why. Um, and so I sort of hit the books and I thought it would be a very short journey, you know, a couple of months and I would be able to figure out how to measure emotions objectively because everyone knew that, you know, there were these universal facial expressions of emotion and universal body patterns for emotion and, and so on and so forth. And, um, what, what was supposed to be, you know, um, naively, uh, a couple of month, uh, you know, diversion so that I could figure out how to measure emotion objectively and kind of get back to my other research um, turned into a 30-year career. Mm -hmm. um, and eventually, you know, I sort of would study one measurement domain at a time. Like, are there really facial expressions of emotion that are universal? Do people universally smile and sadness, I'm um, smiling happiness and frown and sadness and scowl and anger. And it turns out no, and not even you do you, you or me or any person routinely smile and happiness and scowl and anger. And I mean, that actually makes up actually a very uh, small proportion of the facial expressions that we, these very stereotypic expressions 
you know, I think we scowl in anger about 35 on average, 35% of the time, which means 65% of the time we're doing other things in anger. And if you think about it, I don't know, what do you do when you're angry? Do you always scowl? Like, you know, no. And sometimes you are stoic. Sometimes you cry in anger. Sometimes you laugh in anger. Sometimes, you know, you, um, uh, you know, widen your eyes in anger. So we do lots of different things in anger and people also scowl for reasons other than um, being angry quite frequently, actually. And so, you know, I, I studied the face and then I studied the body and eventually people kept saying to me, well, it's in the brain, it's in the brain. There's, you know, one circuit for anger, one circuit for fear. And so I decided, okay, well, I guess I have to learn how to study the brain. <laughs> and so that's what I did. Um, and it was really motivated by this desire to test this idea that there are these universal kind of biologically inherent markers for emotion. And very quickly, I just became enamored with studying the brain and the study of emotion in the brain for me became a flashlight for just studying the brain. Like how does the brain work? How is the brain constantly conversing with your body and the world? And how is it, um, that that creates your mind. And so these really big questions um, are the questions that, you know, preoccupy me. Um, but it was always, you know, originally through the lens of trying to understand the brain basis of emotion. Wow. Yeah, that's, it's amazing. And there's so many ideas there that I'd love to, to tackle. But, you know, it's amazing because your book, How Emotions Are Made, really debunks the myth that there is this universality of emotions, like you just said, that when you're happy, you smile, and that's pretty much it. And when you're sad, you frown, or when you're angry, you frown too, or you cry. And we've basically assumed as a species until today that there is this universality, and you argue that it's rather dangerous to to think about it and also it removes so much so much field of of ourselves and who we are and who we can be and even you go to the extent that our laws and our systems and even world conflicts can be you know in danger of being messed up because we believe on these categories of who we are and our emotions and you also tackle one of the biggest mysteries of the world. Arguably, I'd like to, to ask you if this is true, but do you believe that the brain is still the biggest mystery in the universe? I really do. I, I, but I guess I would say it's not just the brain. It's really the brain's... The way the brain uh, constantly... It, the way it works in constant conversation with your body. I think we don't really understand that. And that is really at the root of everything that you think and feel and see and do. Uh, it's really fundamentally um, important to who you are as a person, even though we don't experience ourselves that way. And um, yeah, so I think that there are other great mysteries 
in in the universe you know but the the three pound blob of meat between your ears mm -hmm. is is definitely up there for for me and so far no one is really given a solid account for example of how it is that um your brain how it is a brain makes itself aware of certain signals and can use other signals without making itself aware like you know mm -hmm. and also like i just you know i continue to learn things that are startlingly cool like i that i would never like yesterday i was listening to a talk i someone came to speak at our university and he was talking about how um you know we we make constant eye movements. They're called saccades. We're not aware of doing it, but our eyes are moving every 300 milliseconds. And every time your eyes move in, um, in V1, primary visual cortex, your whole um, visual field shifts like every 300 milliseconds. Now I'm looking at you and she doesn't look to me like your face is moving around the screen, right? So do we have object this object stability that we see an object it's there right we're not it's not moving around but yet um our eyes are are constantly making these little movements every every 300 milliseconds and if we, they don't we we stop seeing wow and what's really interesting is that your brain 300 milliseconds within 300 milliseconds it starts to anticipate the the neural firing of where your your fovea will be, like the middle of your retina, the middle of your eye, it starts to, the neurons start to change their firing before you move your eyes. So, you know, that's just, so you're already starting to see what your brain expects to see 300 milliseconds before you see it. I just think that's, Wow. It, I, 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 you know, it never fails to amaze me. I mean, I know a lot about how brains predict, but there was something about the elegance of that experiment and also um, the um, just the coolness of of it that, you know, our brains are these like great. Um, uh, they're not just mysteries. They're like masters of deception, you know, wow. like your brain creates your experience for you and in such a way that it that that it believe you know the conscious part of you believes that your experience reveals how things work um so it's not only creating experience it's like hiding from itself how it does it it's just really fascinating yeah no and it, what i find also kind of funny is that we're these like you say we're this vehicle for our brains to make sense of the world and for mm. us to try to make sense of the world but also how the brain's function ultimately is to make us survive enough time to reproduce, to pass our genes and pass the baton of life, which is very funny because throughout the whole life, throughout our 120 year experience, hopefully, knock on wood, we... <laughs> is that what it is now? I'm, I, that makes me feel much better because that means I'm back at middle age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, it's while this time passes, we're experiencing life. I'm experiencing life. You're experiencing life. And we create these concepts, like you argue. We create these emotions. And we create these stories about ourselves. 
while the whole purpose of it all is to pass life in itself. But the whole story happens. Yeah, so you know what's interesting is that there are, are some scientists who would object to that, even that claim, right? So, um, so we, so evolutionary biologists tell us that our whole job in life is to pass our genes to the next generation and, and actually make sure that that generation survives to reproductive age. It's not just enough to, you know, this is something I often re remind people, like it's not enough to birth babies, you have to actually keep them alive and healthful to get to reproductive age. I feel like um, a lot of people could um, could think about that a little bit, uh, you know, maybe. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm resisting to go off on a, take my lab coat off and, and go off on a tangent. But, um, but, um, but physiologists, there's a physiologist named um, Scott Turner, and he wrote this book called the, uh, the what is it? The, oh, shoot. Now I'm not remembering. The Something Apprentice, um, The Tinkerer's Apprentice. That's what it's called. And he basically argues that actually the goal is to regulate the body in a way that allows for health like allows the the your whole brain body system to be metabolically healthy and um which means in balance mm. um not in some metaphysical way in balance but literally metabolically efficiently like to run the body in a metabolically efficient way so that everything is coordinated um that there's an intrinsic uh, motivation or a goal to have everything be uh, metabolically healthy, like metabolically efficient, I guess. And I thought it was interesting. Um, he he takes apart these ideas um, that we've dismissed in the past um, um, that makes it sound as if biological systems have have a goal in mind or that they're that they're aimed towards something and he says well you know not in any kind of metaphysical way not in any kind of psychological way but they are they are attempting always to um work in the most metabolically efficient way hmm. and i guess i'm somewhat intrigued by this because i think every single kind of illness that you can think of including mental illness has a metabolic basis to it. There's something wrong with your, with the way that cells are metabolizing energy, even in depression and anxiety. So that to me is really interesting actually. And um, of course you, you can't, if you're, if you're not regulating your energy intake and output in an efficient way, you can't reproduce. I mean, that's what, that's what um, evolutionary biologists have shown us. So, it depends on whether you want to focus on the kind of immediate goal, which is metabolic health or the longer term goal, right? Which is passing your genes on to the next generation. It seems to me one or the other isn't really right. It's just more like, where's your focus? Because they're both important. Yeah, no, it's, it's just all of these ideas about, you know, the efficient way of living, just to say it that way, have many different facets to it and 
your book, How Emotions Are Made, and your ideas on really what are emotions and how do they arise, and if there's a particular side of our brain that is in charge of, you know, fear or love or happiness, it's it's not a good idea, to put it mildly, but rather there's a lot of things happening at the same time in our brain, and it's a function of so many different situations happening within and outside you know how we interact with the world how we how the world interacts with us and different neurons activating at the same time and all of this symphony happening inside but i don't want to butcher your ideas doctor <laughs> how are emotions made well in a, to answer how emotions are made you have to kind of step back a couple of steps and ask first of all how does a brain work because hmm. once you understand how a brain works it becomes obvious how emotions are made because emotions aren't made in any way that are different is different from how your thoughts and perceptions are made um it's pretty much the same process and so the way to think about it is the way i think about it which is based on a lot of evidence from a lot of different fields that i've kind of put together is the following you have sensory surfaces on your body. You have a retina inside your eye. You have a cochlea in your ear. You have sensors in your skin and uh, on your tongue and you know in your nose and so on. And you have sensors also inside your body. And the only way that your brain knows what's going on in the world is by the signals it gets from these sensors. So when your brain receives signals from your retina, those signals are the outcomes of some changes in light in the world. So your brain is receiving the outcomes of changes in the world. It doesn't know what the changes are. It doesn't know what the causes are. It only gets the outcomes, the results. So imagine, you know, like the, I, you know, you hear a loud bang. So there's been some change in air pressure that your cochlea has detected and sent signals to your brain. What was that loud bang? Was it a car door slamming? Was it thunder? Uh, you know, because it's about to rain. Was it, um, you know, um, a window slamming because it's windy? Was it a gunshot? What your brain believes the cause of the signals are determines what you do next, what your what your brain prepares you to do next. So it matters, right? And but your brain is always guessing. How how is it making those guesses? Well, what it's doing is it's using past experience. It's basically asking itself, well, the last time I was in this situation with this array of sensory changes, including that bang, what did I see next? What did I hear next? What did I do next? And it basically, it's, it's, it's asking a question about similar features. So in the past, when similar features occurred, what did I do? And what caused those features in the past, right? 
Now, a bunch of things which are similar to each other is called a category. So you could say that what your brain is doing is, is category construction. It's making these categories in an ad hoc kind of way, situation by situation, to make guesses about the meaning of, of these signals, sensory signals it's receiving. Um, but the, the mental representation of a category is a concept. So you could also say, well, the, what the brain is doing is concept generation. It's, you know, and, and for our purposes here, a concept and a category, it's kind of the same thing. Basically, your brain is using the past to make a guess about, you know, the, the present. And um, it's doing the same thing about your body. So your brain doesn't actually know. Your brain's main job is to regulate the systems of your body, make sure they coordinate, make sure they work in a metabolically efficient way. But your brain doesn't know what's going on in the body. It, there, you have sensory surfaces in your body for glucose and oxygen and, you know, salt and, and all of the nutrients that keep you alive and well. Your brain doesn't know what is going on in the body. The sensory surfaces of the body are sending sensory signals back to the brain, which are the outcomes of changes. And so your brain has to guess, well, is that signal, does that signal mean that your heart is racing? Does it mean that you're, you need more oxygen? Does it mean that you need more glucose? What does it mean? And again, it's using past experience to make those guesses. So when you're, you know, so the racing heart, a racing heart doesn't have inherent emotional meaning. Hmm. Your brain has to make it meaningful by making a guess about what caused that racing heart. Is your heart racing because you just ran up the stairs? Is your heart racing because you had too much coffee? Is your heart racing because, you know, you, you're feeling, um, you know, uh, really enthusiastic or afraid, right? What is the... What is the cause of that of that racing heart? How do I make sense of that racing heart? And what do I do next? And so your brain is basically, when it uses past experiences of emotion, it's creating an emotion category and it's making sense of the present moment as an emotion. Um, and you might ask, well, how does your brain learn about emotion then if you're not born with emotion circuits? And you don't, how do you learn? And the answer is you're taught. <laughs> you're taught. We're all taught. I mean, we're born with simple feelings, feelings of pleasantness, feelings of unpleasantness, comfort, discomfort, pain, pleasure, feeling worked up, feeling calm. These are simple physiological feelings that come from the brain's regulation of the body. And they're always with us all the time, whether we're emotional or not, whether we're aware of them or not. We, we have lots of names for these feelings. We call them mood. We, uh, scientists call them affect. Um, other animals have these feelings too, as far as we can tell, at least vertebrates have them and some crustaceans have them too. Insects, you know, we're not so sure. Um, but, um, but certainly vertebrates have them and, and we all have them. Um, but they're not emotions. Those are like features of consciousness, like the brightness of light or the loudness of a sound. Um, your brain has to make them meaningful um, as an emotion, um, for them to become emotion. Right. And so how we learn about emotion is when we have a change in our physical state, which we give signs of, of affect. And then, um, when we're infants, you know, our parents and caregivers and people around us, they use emotion language, um, to, um, uh, label or curate our, you know, 
the meaning of those affective changes. And that's how infants learn. They're very quick learners and infants can use words to learn an abstract concept, like a really hard concept, you know, at the age of three months. I mean, like it's, even though they don't even know what the words mean, there's something very special about words and how they work that help us learn the concepts that we need um, for everything that we experience. Wow. So your brain, so I would say emotion is your brain telling itself a story about the meaning of your um, sensations, including kind of knitting together the sensations in your body and um, in relation to what's going on around you in the world. And they are fundamentally, these stories, recipes for action which is why you sometimes scowl in anger, but sometimes you cry in anger and sometimes you laugh in anger and sometimes you're stoic in anger. Yeah. Um, sometimes you, you know, withdraw in anger. How does your brain know to do these various things in anger? And the answer is it's learned. It's learned and it can combine what it's learned in novel ways to produce um, behaviors that you've never you know, in situations you've never been in before, you can produce behaviors that you may never have actually done before because it has this ability to combine what it knows in, in novel ways. That is very, very interesting. And it's really a mind-blowing idea that our emotions are constructed. And you also argue on this big theory, the theory of the constructed emotion, which basically points out what you've just mentioned but it's it's so breathtaking that and puts me particularly in a very powerful position in terms of self-responsibility which i've also loved to talk with you about but knowing that most of my emotions are a function of past experiences like you say and how i reacted beforehand and it ultimately led me here which quote unquote my brain may have interpreted as survived. I survived this situation mm -hmm. by acting that different way, which was taught by me, by my family or my society or my culture, which culture also plays such a gigantic role in, in how we treat our own emotions, because that's a whole different topic in itself. I want to touch on it too, but to keep with my rant is <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting to think that we have the power to change our emotions now fully knowingly that they're socially built and they're a product of of what's happening also inside us but the way we categorize them are a product of words of thoughts of concepts like you say so is it possible to you also mentioned anticipation and and, and the future but now that i know alex reacts this way when Dr. Barrett mentioned something about the brain, is it possible to take the past out of the equation of emotion building so we can create a more better route or different route, if you want to say it that way, for our mind eye to anticipate future situations? So. You know, you have a very poetic way of speaking. I have to say, I'm, I really, I like it very much. I'm enjoying it very much. I, 
I think what I would say is that you can't really take the past out of the equation, but what you can do is cultivate a past that makes it easier for you to be the kind of person you want to be in the future. Mm. And the, the, what I mean by that is um, you can never escape using past experience. If, if you can't bring past experience to bear in the present moment, you'll be experientially blind. You just, it, it's like listening to a language you don't speak. It just sounds like a bunch of sounds to you, right? Yeah. Um, you, you don't know what the sounds mean. You don't even know where the word breaks are. You just, it just sounds like, like noise. You just can't, you know, you, you can't make any sense of it. And that's what it feels like to be experientially blind. Um, and, um, you know, I tell this funny story about, well, I think it's funny because it just shows my complete ignorance. You know, my daughter is a musician. I mean, she's other things too, but she's, she's very, very musical, like her dad. And she, um, was experimenting with, I think it was dubstep at the time when I was writing how emotions are made. And I was like, what, I mean, you know, and I actually, I think I said something like, what is that racket? Like, and I was like, oh my God, my mother, that's what my mother would say. You know, like, did I just turn into my mother there for a minute? <laughs> you know? <laughs> But the thing is that, or, or heavy metal. So she, you know, she's a drummer and she likes to, she plays heavy metal. I mean, she sings opera and she plays heavy metal music. So, you know, she's, she's all over the map with music, but what's interesting is that I don't like heavy metal music as a general rule, but I, and, and when she originally started to play it, it sounded to me like noise, but then as she educated me about actually what is virtuosic about heavy metal. And there are particular bands that she really likes and she would explain it to me and then she would play them. And she's particularly good at playing um, some Paramore songs, which are not heavy metal, but it's like really heavy rock and not something I would typically listen to myself, but I listen to this. I listen to Paramore all the time now because my daughter played it. Wow. And, um, and I love hearing her play. And I actually now, because now I have knowledge that I didn't have before that allows me to make sense of it and enjoy it. Um, and so I guess what I would say is that a way that you can change your past, like if you're pre if what's happening in the present is that your brain is, is um, using the past to make sense of the present and anything it can't anticipate is an opportunity for learning. Wow. So one thing that you can do is you can expose yourself to deliberately to things that are new to you and novel as, a, as an opportunity to learn. And if you do this continuously, you can, you're basically seeding your past. You're cultivating a past that will allow you to be different in to, to predict differently, to anticipate differently, to experience things differently in, in the future. And at first blush, that might sound crazy. Like what, you know, but it's kind of like driving actually, you know, or any skill that you learn, it's really hard at first. You have to invest a lot of energy in it. You, it's all, you know, what we would call prediction error. You can't anticipate all the things you, and you have to concentrate really hard on every little thing. But eventually with practice, it becomes very, very automatic because then your brain is very, very good at using the past to anticipate what's going to happen next. And it all becomes very fluid. 
So at first it's, or it's like exercise, you know, you, when you're learning, you know, a new exercise, you're, it's very cumbersome, but then eventually if you practice it for a while, you become really good at it. You become so good at it that it ceases to be as demanding of energy anymore. And so you've got to mix things up. That's why interval training is so effective because you're yeah. constantly throwing unanticipated things at people and their brains have to kind of adjust and it's, it's effortful and it burns a lot of energy. So your what your ability to kind of harness the present as a way of cultivating a past that will let you be as you said uh, will help you on your philosophical journey to become who you want to become in the future it's not quick it's not easy it takes a lot of effort and practice but it's doable and people do it all the time right? So we absolutely have more control over our experiences than we think we do. But that control is not in the moment. It's not like you can snap your fingers and say, well, okay, I don't, I'm feeling unpleasant now. I don't want to feel, I don't want to feel discomfort or distress anymore. So I'm going to snap my fingers and like, just change how I think about things. And, you know, then I'm going to feel differently. doesn't work like that, unfortunately. But we do have this, this, this is one sort of way of, of several ways I talk about in the book that with patience and effort, you can slowly shift the trajectory of your experiences. Wow. Yeah. And it's, it's funny that you mentioned that your daughter is a drummer. My, I am a drummer too. So Are you? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very funny. That's great. And what do you play? What do you like to play? We, me and my friends, we use, we usually go to a studio and we just improvise. It goes from like, rock to reggae to like everything in between we just it's so funny it's, it's a very funny thing but like one genre in particular honestly no paramore sounds like a really cool band to play for like drumming but i'm all over the place too <laughs> it's very energetic there's yeah. ones there are a couple of songs you have to be very 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 quick um you know she also plays my husband is a musician also and I mean, he's also a computer scientist by day, but I mean, he's a, in his heart, you know, he's a musician. Um, um, he's a keyboardist. And so, you know, he turned her on to Rush because he loves Rush. He loves like 70s sort of progressive rock, but the drummer in Rush um, before he died, um, what was his name? Um, I can't remember at the moment. Um, anyways, he was an amazing drummer, really precise, really quick. So I think my daughter spent a year learning like how to play a Rush song for her dad, you know, just, to, yeah. <laughs> but that's very cool. That's yeah. very, very cool. And in what you mentioned that, you know, it's rather costly to, to change our circuitries, to put it that way, of, of emotion and how to react to certain, certain situations, rather. It's very costly in two ways. One is something we... I believe we all grapple with is uncertainty, which you mentioned very in a very insightful way in how you how emotions are made. That uncertainty is like an enemy for the brain in a way, like it, like you just mentioned. Well, it's, it's an opportunity, and it's also a burden. You right. know, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's, but it, the way that it's portrayed in society for a way is like we have to create certainty always, you know, in, so we can become useful in a way that's like one barrier that we need to overcome or to to change into opportunities like you brilliantly said 
The other one, and you mentioned it before, is how our body influences our emotions, how our body influences our brain's capacity to think in a way. And it's this notion that I never heard of before, upon before reading your book, How Emotions Are Made, is the body budget, which is such an interesting idea. And, you know, it's this metabolic tax, like you argue that we always try to spend or rather we try to invest in a way so we can create more opportunities. But how is this relationship between our body budget and our emotions really play out and what we can learn about it? Yeah, so the body budget is a metaphor. And when it, and as I said in the book, and I'll say it again here, you know, metaphors are useful, but they also are, they're a bit like Faustian bargains, you know, because all metaphors are wrong. Yeah. So when you're, when you're using a metaphor to communicate something that's complicated in science, it's always wrong, but you want to choose one that's wrong in the least important way, <laughs> right? So body budgeting is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for uh, a, a term called allostasis, uh, which is the brain's attempt to anticipate the needs of the body and try to meet those needs before they arise. So an example would be when your brain is going to stand your body up, it's not going to do that and then wait for blood, your blood pressure, and then, and then change your blood pressure so that, you know, oxygen can make it to your brain. <laughs> it's going to start to change as you stand, your brain is going to start to change your blood pressure so that by the time you're standing, the blood pressure is high enough that the, that your blood will reach your brain and you won't faint because fainting is a very, very metabolically expensive thing to do. You could break a, a bone, very expensive metabolically, right? Or for example, sometimes people, actually it's very common for people to talk about cortisol hmm. as a stress hormone, but cortisol is not a stress hormone. Cortisol is a hormone that your brain directs your body to secrete, your adrenal glands to secrete um, whenever it believes that you, that there'll be a lot of uh, glucose needs. So when you're preparing to do something energetic, like drag your ass out of bed in the morning, right? So before you wake up in the morning, right before you wake up, as you're waking up, there's a cortisol surge. <laughs> um, at, as you go to exercise, there's a cortisol surge. Basically, all stress really is, is your brain preparing your body for a big metabolic outlay that it's expecting to come, whether that's dragging yourself out of bed in the morning or exercising or dealing with your asshole boss, you know, in a half an hour or, or, you know, anticipating that somebody might negatively evaluate you in some way for the purse you carry or for the car you drive. They're all from the body's perspective, the same, which is that they require metabolic resources. And so your brain's basically always attempting to get the resources where they need to be before you need them, which is good economic sense. You don't spend what you don't have, mm -hmm. right? You that because then you incur a debt. And sometimes you 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 might incur a debt like in exercise, but then you need to repay that debt. You need to replenish that debt. You need to make deposits. 
So metaphorically, you could think about your brain as running a budget for your body. It's not budgeting like money, it's budgeting glucose and salt and oxygen and so on. And you can think about eating and sleeping as deposits. And you can think about um, exercise and learning and uncertainty and dealing with other people as, you know, costs, withdrawals. And you can think about savings, right? So it turns out that we're, we're social animals. We, we help regulate each other's body budgets. And so other people, other people, you know, basically give you savings if they're really helpful to you, if they're taking on some of the burden of your body budget, this would be people that you're attached to or that you love or that you feel close to. Biologically, what it means is that they're tending your body budget, uh, you know, uh, in, in concert with you tending your own and you're tending theirs, but people can also be, they can also add a tax, <laughs> All right. Um, they can, um, make it harder um, for you to manage your body budget in an, in a, in an efficient way, in this anticipatory way, it's, it's always cheaper. It's always better actually to run any system, whether you're talking about a biological system or even, you know, something in the world, like a, like a, an engineered system, it's, it's cheaper to anticipate what you have to do next and correct than it is to react. Reaction is very, very, very expensive. Um, cause you're, you, you have no way of reducing the uncertainty when you react, all things are possible. And that's just an expensive way to, 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 to deal with things. But if you can reduce the number of possibilities, you're reducing uncertainty to just a few, and then the incoming information can help figure out which of those few, that's a much cheaper and more effective way to run something like including a body. So I just talk about this in terms of body budgeting, because it is like running a budget a little bit. There are taxes and and there are, you know, the taxes are little, but they add up over time to make big deficits if you're not yeah. careful. And you can think about depression, for example, as being a bankrupt body budget. And you can think about COVID malaise, like like this like never ending uncertainty that we're in as, you know, a drain on our body budgets due to many things, including persistent uncertainty. Yeah. Right. So this idea that we're all exhausted and um, languishing because, you know, our fight and flight circuits, um, uh, you know, um, are, are, are overrun or whatever is just the wrong metaphor. We don't have fight or flight circuits. Actually, we have circuits for regulating the body which are driving very hard when you're fleeing or fighting, but the circuits aren't for fleeing or fighting, they're for regulation. And those same circuits are also very engaged when um, there's a lot of uncertainty and your brain can't prepare in advance a response. It's just expensive and hard. So I think body budgeting is a good metaphor. You can think about almost everything you do in those terms. And it helps you understand, you know, when your body budget is running a deficit, you're going to feel like crap. Mm. Yeah. And then your brain is going to attempt to make meaning out of that crappy feeling, right? It's going to create an emotion or it's going to project that crappy feeling to be a feature of somebody else. Like that person is not nice or that person is 
unkind or, you know, it will, the affect is always there. It's sometimes it's, you experience it as a feature of your own. Um, you, it's part of your own experience. And sometimes it's part of your experience of other people, right. Yeah. Or, or things in the world. Like that's a delicious drink. That's an ugly painting. That's a not nice person. Yeah, no, absolutely. And like you touch upon how emotions are made, this, this situation plays out in very crucial context, for example, with jurors and judges, when they're more hungry or they haven't had a good breakfast or they had a bad night's sleep, they tend to judge harshly to their counterparts. And that's mind-blowing because, you know, we, we've built upon this system that we are these great mind readers, we're these efficient bodies that we understand how the outer world works exactly. And we forget the essential part of the equation, which is our inner situation, our inner selves and how we are playing in and we're factoring into the situation, which was extremely useful for me because there's times in everyone's lives and my life that I get mad or I get angry and then I do like a self-check after reading how emotions are made that, you know, what's happening inside me? What's, is there an interoceptive signal that I can get from this? And it has helped me a lot. I've, I'm glad. I'm yeah. really glad. Yeah, and I think the places where it helps me the most are things like oftentimes I will be in the middle of the day, I'll experience hunger. <laughs> and then I stop and I actually kind of do a body scan and I try to think like, well, like when's the last time I ate? Am I really hungry? You know, what does my stomach feel like? And I'll realize actually I'm not really hungry. What I am is tired. And when you're tired, you know, you've had thousands and thousands and thousands of trials of learning that when you eat, you get energy, right? So um, when you're tired, you, you think you want to eat. Um, and so, but so is it hunger or is it that I'm tired? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times it's just that I'm tired. And the really interesting thing is that one of the things that you experience when you're dehydrated when you haven't had enough water to drink is you feel fatigue. You don't feel thirsty necessarily. And so that's been a real help to me. Yeah. The other is that, um, you know, there's a Buddhist saying that I really value and it it's, um, I can't give it to you in Tibetan, but in English it's um, anger is a form of ignorance. So as a person who's prone to irritation, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, that's a really useful one for me because what it means is that my brain has made sense of things in a particular way, ignoring the perspective of the other person, which if you consider it, you might not agree with it, but if you consider it, it can almost dissolve the anger into something else um, very, very, very frequently, I find, actually. Um, so again, it's about focusing on features in the world that make sense or give meaning to the features of experience from your body. And you can change what you pay attention to in the way that you described and in the way that I just described and actually change your experience. Yeah. 
that's that's amazing and i know we're we're short on time i have so many questions to ask you hopefully we can do this again sometime um but you know there's this idea that you touch upon earlier on how we're social animals and i'd like to get on rather than that side of the equation i'd like to get on the context that we're currently living in you know especially my generation you know in their 20s are experiencing such a bombarding and explosion of information of overload of overstimulation in terms of our technologies our social medias the food that we eat like you say and how emotions are made it, how it influences us it's it can get overwhelming to put it mildly and there is this underlying theme that you argue that if we don't understand what's happening in the outer world too we can interpret as so i didn't know how to identify that i was you know i used too much my screen time or you know i i was scrolling too much on social media after a post and that made me so anxious and this downward downward spiral turns into something that maybe can't be reversible like depression or very hard to do it or anxiety but these keys that you help us unlock to, of understanding ourselves is, are very useful for me too and hopefully for my generation but how can we navigate dr barrett how can we navigate efficiently or you know i don't want to say efficient i want i want to say the best way possible all of this tsunami of information that we're handling so we, it really doesn't mess up our our emotions yeah so that's a great question and i love that question because it's a um i mean in part i wrote this book i wrote this book for many reasons but one of the reasons was i wrote it for my daughter actually who is 20 now she's about to be 24 but when i started the book you know she was an adolescent and she was struggling and she still struggles. We all struggle with the kinds of things that you're talking about. But I think that young people right now are struggling more mm -hmm. than, and, um, and you know, they're, it's not just me. I mean, that even the world health organization, you know, has talked about anxiety and depression in particular, actually, as actually, I think it's number one uh, in the diseases that um, cause um, disease burden. And, uh, and I could go on and on and on, but yeah, I think that, our current culture, our current cultural influences are are like a. I like the word tsunami. I wouldn't say it's a tsunami of information, though. I'd say it's a tsunami of signals. Mm. Like there's shit happening out there, <laughs> which is causing shit happening in your body. But what of that is signal and what is noise? Like what is information and what can be safely ignored? And so here's what I would say: when you were a little baby. You were born without an attentional system that was fully developed. So to you, everything was equally important. Mm -hmm. You had what Alison Gopnik called a lantern of attention. Everything was important. And, but of course, everything is, can't be important because it's too, that's too much burden for one nervous system to bear. It's too expensive. And so what your caregivers did was they, taught you by words, by actions, by eye gaze. They taught you using all of these tools that we have as humans, what to pay attention to and what to ignore, safely to ignore. So if you and I, we're, you know, we don't live in the same city, but let's say that I 
Alex, I traveled to where you live and we were sitting in a coffee shop and I've never been to wherever it is, let's say, and a siren goes by. Yeah. If you don't turn your head and orient to the siren, I probably won't turn my head and orient to the siren. I'm going to take your lead. You're the expert. You're telling me, oh, that doesn't, you don't, you know, or if we were in New York and you'd never been to New York before, you would, I wouldn't pay attention to a siren. And then you wouldn't pay attention to the siren because, you know, I'm basically telling you, listen, that's not that important by just the fact that I didn't move and respond to it. But if you did respond to something, I would respond to it too. So I'd be taking your lead. I'd be learning. I, you would be regulating my attention. And we do that for each other. But that's what you have to do sometimes for yourself. And it's really hard to do that. Um, when um, there's a lot of uncertainty, you, you're going to attempt to reduce the uncertainty. And often that means foraging for information, like you scroll on media or whatever, social media, or whatever. But that's actually just paradoxically just increasing the uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So I think there are a couple of really simple things to do, frankly. Um, one is never, and you're going to think I'm nuts when I say this, but never be on a screen past nine o'clock at night, eight o'clock if you can manage it. Why? Well, in addition to all the uncertainty that's there, which will big, take big withdrawals from your metabolic budget, the light from the screen will there are cells in your retina that respond to that light that regulate your circadian rhythm. So you're making, your brain is start is thinking that it's the middle of the day when it's nine o'clock at night yeah. or 10 o'clock at night or midnight, which means your sleep is going to be disrupted. And if your sleep is disrupted, you are on a one way train, my friend, if you don't turn it around to depression. I mean, like, Disrupted sleep is the worst, worst, worst thing for you metabolically and also mood wise. It's just, it's really, and I can't understate the importance of this. And so if you lead a busy life and you're burning the candle at both ends and you're on your screen late at night and you're not sleeping enough, you know, I guess what I would say is when you're thinking in terms of body budgets and withdrawals and deposits, you can start to make better choices about regulating your attention, what you give your attention to and what you um, protect your attention from, you know, and that it doesn't solve the problem, but it, it does go a ways to, um, you know, making you less susceptible to negative emotion. Yeah. Dr. Barrett, I have so many questions for you so many i'm i'm mad i'm going to use more vocabulary amplifying words but right now i'm mad it's pretty simple because we have so little time no no let's and... be let's be um let's um anticipate the the future the next time that we uh that we have a chance to talk so we can we can uh take that high arousal feeling and, and turn it into anticipation for the next time i'm happy and excited and looking forward to the next time because there's so many things that I'd like to discuss with you, you know, vocabulary, cultural differences, personal responsibility, our mind die that, you know, I have so many questions for you, but your book, How Emotions Are Made, do truly accomplish the goal that you just mentioned to help us, my generation, uh, you know, handle all of these external shocks that are happening in the world while paradoxically making us understand 
why we're reacting that way, how are we reacting that way, and all of these situations unfolding within us and outside of us that, you know, put us on a much better position to cope or I wouldn't say thrive in these uncertain times because, you know, there's a lot of things happening, but thanks to your work, I believe we we can we can thrive. So thank you so much for joining me and I really look forward to the next next edition. Me too. Thank you so much for this uh, really incredibly fun and very enjoyable conversation. Thank you so much.